All right, so welcome everyone. Hey, if you weren't with us uh, last week, I'm going to start by just in two minutes, give you a little recap of what we're up to. Last week, I started the series called The Core. And through the series, what I want us to do is help understand and identify what are the key components of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. In other words, what is God's plan for salvation? I talked about last week that we have a problem in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian culture where we assume everybody knows the gospel message. So instead of proclaiming the gospel message, we assume that everybody knows. And as a result, a lot of people that are raised in church or raised in Christian families only know bits and pieces of the gospel message. And that's not a good situation. It causes a lot of problems. So that's why I want to take this time in the series. We're going to go through five core essential elements of the gospel message. I want to go through this series because, it, you know, when you understand the gospel, it's critical. It serves as kind of foundation for everything else we read in the Bible and know about God. So we want to understand what uh, salvation is all about. So during this series, we're going to help us understand the plan that God has for each of us. And as we understand God's plan for each of us, it transforms our life. See, when the gospel is not clear, when it's not explicitly clear, we have a tendency to think that Christianity is all about a list of do's and don'ts. And so our view of following God comes down to this rule and that rule, and we have to follow these rules. See, there's nothing wrong with rules, but Christianity was meant to be much more than rules. It's always about a relationship. See, at the center of Christianity is this word grace. And grace is God's free gift of salvation. That's a gift that cannot be earned or achieved, or it's not a reward. See, grace is also God's gift that invites us to come to him for strength. It's interesting how Paul says it. He says it very well. He says that the grace of God, <clears throat> where is it? I thought I had that memorized. All right, Paul says it best when he says that God's grace is all that you need because the power of the Holy Spirit is made perfect when you do not rely on God. See, if we don't understand God's grace, we're never going to understand his power that he gives to each of us to change our life. And we see that problem in a lot of churches today. When you don't understand the power of God, we don't understand how you can overcome sin, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to change the Bible. Because no longer can you adhere to the gospel. You can never adhere to the, the, the commandments of God. So you think that you have to change the Bible. See, God created us to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Everything in the salvation message is about the work of Christ in our life, how his life and his death and resurrection will lead to change in our life. But if you don't understand that gospel message of Jesus Christ, you try to do everything on your own. You try to live apart from God and say, okay, I've got to figure out how to do this. And if you can't do it very well, it's going to eventually cause you to run from God instead of run to God. And when you run away from God, you have to say, look at that list in the Bible of what you can do and can't do, and say, I can't adhere to the standards of God, so I need to change the standards of God to accommodate my ability. And so I want us to understand the gospel message, how it can transform our life so much that we can obey everything that God says in his word. See, to help us better understand what the gospel is all about, understand his word is all about, we have to understand at the core that God is love. That's hard, that's hard for a lot of us to understand that God is love because many of us have grown up in a culture where love was conditional. That everything in your life was conditional on how you behaved. 
that love was conditional. If you're good, you'd be accepted. If you're bad, you would not be accepted. So we have a hard time sometimes transferring over and thinking God is unconditional love. That God loves each of us exactly the way we are, despite if there's sin in our life or no sin in our life. That God loves us enough to have a good plan and a purpose for us. So it's essential that we understand that the core of the salvation story, that God is love. I want to show you that today in the scriptures. I'm going to talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And you'll see in the scripture that God is love. That the core of everything that he does is love. And so our core principle that we're going to be talking about today is that God is the holy, just, and the, cre- and the gracious creator of all things. That's our message today. So how do we know that God is the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things? We're going to spend our time today in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're going to look at the creation of man and women and the fall of man and women to see how God responded. When you see how God responds to men and women and their sin, it shows you that the core essence of God is love. And you see his compassion. You may recall that God created the world in seven days. He took day one to five, and he created by calling things into being. So on day one, he said, let there be light, and there was light. He did that for five days. But then on the sixth day, he did something very different. He created man. But he didn't say, let there be man, and then there was man. Instead, what God did, he said in Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. See, it would have been a whole lot easier if God would just once again said, let there be man, and then there was a man show up. But God didn't do it on the sixth day. Instead, he chose to create with his hands. When it says in the scripture that he formed us, it gives the image of a potter with a lump of clay, molding something to be very unique, molding something to be very individual and to be very special. See, whatever you hold in your hands, you treasure. Whatever you hold in your hands, you value. See, one of my favorite authors on leadership is Max Dupree. Max was a former CEO of Herman Miller, the incredible office furniture company in Zeeland, Michigan. I love office furniture. And I love Herman Miller. And Max was an amazing leader. But Max also had a granddaughter named Zoe. And when Zoe was born... 15 or 16 weeks premature, so when she was born, she was only about 11 inches long and only weighed one pound and seven ounces. And to complicate matters uh, more, Zoe's father exited the picture when she was born, so Max was the grandfather and the surrogate father. And Max would visit her every day. And Max wrote the book, Dear Zoe, kind of a bunch of letters that he wrote to his granddaughter not knowing if she would ever read the book. So one day he was at the hospital and he was standing next to her little bassinet that they put her in. And one of the nurses came up to Max and said, I, have, I want you to do something. For the next three months, I want you to come to the hospital every single day to visit Zoe. And I want you to take your finger and touch her leg and touch her arm and touch her body. And while you're touching her, I want you to tell her how much you love her. Tell her over and over again how much you love her. And so Max did that. 
And the nurse said, the reason I want you to do that is because she needs to connect your touch with your voice. And there's power in touch in a voice. And that's what happened the day God created each person here. That God created you with his hands, and then he created you with his breath. So he tells us in Genesis 2, verse 7, then God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that's what happened to you created. See, God could have done it another way, but God wanted to hold what he created and breathe life into you. And when you're created, God didn't just breathe life into you, but he told you how much he loved you. See, the scripture tells us that every single person is born with this inborn knowledge of who God is in the law of God. It's in us. And I think the reason it's in there is so someday when God calls to us, calls us to come into relationship with him, that we're going to remember his voice and that we'll remember his touch and that we'll come to know God as our Lord and our Savior. See, there's power in the touch. There's power in God's love. But today I also want to talk about three more attributes of God besides his love. God's also holy. Holiness is kind of one of those words that's kind of hard for us to understand because none of us are holy. So we don't get what it's like. If I said God was hungry, you'd all be like, I know what hunger is like. But to describe holy, we just have to look at a different set of lists to understand God's holiness. In Isaiah 43, 15, it says, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your God. See, holiness by itself means to be set apart, that there's absolutely none like you, that you are dramatically set apart. To be holy means you have absolutely no competition. There's no rival. God is not in, a, in any competition with any false religions or false gods. God's way above it. He's superior to anything. He's not threatened by anything. Because God is holy, and because he's holy, he can do nothing wrong. Everything that he does is absolutely perfect. Perfectly morally, he can't sin. But another thing about holiness is holiness cannot tolerate sin. Holiness cannot be in the presence of sin. Which brings us to the next point about God, is that he is just. In Proverbs 17, verse 15, it says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. See, because God is holy, he's just. And a just God is a good judge. And a good judge cannot say to an innocent person, you're guilty. And a good God cannot say to a guilty person, you're innocent. God has to call the guilty, guilty, and the innocent, innocent. See, God can never overlook sin. God can never tolerate sin. Because God is just, he has to deal with sin. So sin creates a situation for God. How is a holy God that sin cannot be in the presence of going to deal with a fallen humanity who has sinned? But yet God still wants a relationship with people. See, if God would allow sinful people into heaven, heaven would no longer be holy. It would no longer be pure. Heaven would fall under the same curse of earth. So God has to judge sin. Otherwise, sin would corrupt heaven. So the final attribute or character of God that we're looking at today is God's grace. 
that God is gracious. We see in Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Why did the grace of God appear? To give us what we do not deserve. The grace of God came to give us his favor. As you, you might remember earlier, I said grace is not a reward for good behavior. It's not compensation for the bad things in your life. It's simply a gift from God. See, the next point is hard to comprehend. Is that Jesus existed with a plan for him to die on the cross before creation. That there was a plan to rescue people from sin even before sin entered the world. See, it wasn't God who one day woke up and thought, Adam, you've sinned, now what do I do? But see, a holy God, a just God, a God of all wisdom, knew beforehand what was going to happen. 1 Peter 1 through 20 tells us that in the scripture. It says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. See, Jesus was planned in advance that he'd rescue each of us. And that's a good thing because we know that Adam and Eve did sin and each of us do need someone to rescue us. So let's go to the creation story where we go to Genesis 1. And we see, we know Genesis 1, how God created the heavens and earth. And then we go to Genesis 2 where God gives his instructions to Adam and Eve. And God says to them, it's then the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have one rule, one rule only, that they cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know what they did. They ate from that tree. So then the next question is, what's God going to do? What is a holy God going to do that his creation has sinned? What is he going to do? And that's how I want to spend the rest of our time today, just talking about how God reacts to Adam and Eve. See, the very first thing that God does to Adam and Eve after they sin is the same thing he does to each of us. He extends grace to them. See, God looks for them, and he finds them, and he speaks to them. In Genesis 3, verse 7 through 9, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? So we see this couple just sinned, and what does God do? He pursues them. They're hiding. Two people who are covered in shame, covered in guilt, trying to hide themselves with fig leaves. And what does God do? He searches for them. But see, what's more impressive in this story is that Adam and Eve can also hear God. In the midst of their sin, they can hear the voice of God calling them. And I think if you ever wonder about the extent of the grace of God, you know, look no further than this story. That even if the, after they sinned, even after they did the most original sin, that God looks for them, finds them, speaks to them, and they can hear his voice. 
And that's the good news for any person that you're praying for that's far from God, that God can still speak to them and, God, and they can still hear God's voice. So what is the next thing that God does to them after he looks for them and finds them and speaks to them? The next thing he does is he extends to them more grace. See, God actually gives them a promise. Two people have sinned. God is showing them grace after grace. See, how does he show them a promise? Go to Genesis 3, verse 14 through 15. This is what the Lord says to the devil. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And now the word he is referring to Jesus will crush your head and he, Jesus, will strike your heel. After they sin, God gives them a promise that in the coming day he's going to destroy the enemy that got them to sin. What God does before he addresses Adam and Eve's sin, he addresses what the enemy did to them. So what does this promise mean to each of us? It means that God has not given up on his plans for you and me after we sin. And that's the, that's the message of the gospel, that God never gives up on his plan for you and me even after we sin. But he has a plan to strike against the enemy. But see, we got one thing up on Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were waiting for Jesus to come. We have Jesus. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. We live with the resurrection power that Jesus has defeated every single enemy that comes against us. That no matter what enemy is, no matter what weakness you have, no matter what vulnerability, we have a Savior that defeated that enemy in our life so that we don't have to deal with the consequences of that. And that makes life a whole lot easier knowing that Jesus has defeated the enemy that's trying to kill us. So then what's the next thing that God does? The third thing is he does tell Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin. In, in Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, it says, oh, 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's interesting that to dust you will return. That when God created man and women, when he created man, he used dust from the ground. See, God could use any single element that he wanted to when he created man but he chose dust. Why would he choose dust? There's no value in dust. See, I think what he wanted us all to know, to remember, is there's no value in our body, in our appearance, our look, our color, our height. The value of every person is always the breath that was breathed into them. 
there's no value in the dust. And that's why racism is so stupid. Because there's absolutely no value in the dust. The value for every human being is the breath that was breathed into them. And that's the power of God and the love of God. So, okay, so God tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin. <clears throat> it's easy to look at this verse and say, whoa, God's really punishing them hard. God's really letting them have it. You know, you're going to let them off a little bit. See, on one hand, it is pretty hard, the consequences of their sin. But I want to show you in the next couple minutes that by God judging their sin, he was extending grace to them. That by judging their sin, he was extending grace to them. That the best thing for God to do was to judge man and women. That the best thing that God can do for any person is to bring judgment on your sins. And I'm going to show you that in the next few verses. So after God tells Adam and Eve, okay, look, you've done this wrong. Here's your consequences. Then what does he do? He provides for them again. In Genesis 3, verse 21, it says... The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. See, once Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were open, and they knew they were, they knew they were naked. And suddenly they experienced shame for the first time. But what does God do? He covers their shame. This isn't a God that's looking for a way to punish you, looking for a way to whack you down. But over and over again, we see God extends grace. He shows them grace. He shows them favor. He shows them love. He shows them kindness. And now he's covering their vulnerability. That's a God of love. We get so used to a God in our society that we think is a distant God that he's waiting to just punish us. That he's waiting for us to do something wrong so he can say, yeah, now I can whack you, good one. That's not the God of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But we show a God of compassion and kindness covering people when they sin. So why does God judge the guilty? So he can extend grace to them. And so what does he do next? The next thing he does is he protects Adam and Eve. How does he protect them? By sending them out of the garden. You might think that's not a very nice thing to do to people, send them out of their home. But I want you to see that sending Adam and Eve out of the garden was the most loving thing that God could do for them. It was an act of compassion. It was an act of grace. It was an act of mercy. See, Genesis 3, verse 22 to 24, we read, And the Lord God said, The man <clears throat> has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Why would God send him out of the garden? Seems like it might be a good idea to let Adam and Eve stay in the garden and let them eat of the tree of life because that might be a good remedy for them. Maybe that would be helpful for them. But see, God sent him out of the garden because he didn't want to eat from the tree of life. Why? Because if they would have eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their sin state. They would live forever and ever and ever and keep sinning and sinning and sinning. God said that wasn't good enough. 
God's design was never for each of us to live forever in our sin state, but his goal, his design for us was to live for eternity in perfection. But if Adam and Eve would have stayed in the Garden of Eden, they would have ate from the Tree of Life and they would have kept sinning and sinning and sinning. And that would have been hell. That, that is the definition of hell, is to live forever and keep sinning. But see, what God had Adam and Eve do is he made them leave the Garden of Eden. And by leaving the Garden of Eden, they would ultimately die. And because they would die, they would have access to restoration and eternal life and to live forever in perfection. And that's the grace and love of God. That he would take a sinful person and protect them and give them eternal life. See, when God said, when Satan said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 5, <clears throat> Satan said to Adam and Eve when he, he tricked them, he said, God knows that when you eat from it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So we wonder sometimes, well, why wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be good to be like God? Why is that a bad thing? See, when Satan lied to Adam and Eve, he told them the truth. You eat of that, you will become like God. And how would they become like God? That they would now understand sin in a different way. See, Adam and Eve understood sin intellectually when God put them in the garden because he said you can eat from one tree and not the other. So Adam and Eve have a good idea. Something's good, something's bad. But when they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now they experienced sin. And that wasn't good. And that's why they became like God. See, God never sinned. But because of God's knowledge and wisdom, he understands what happens when you experience sin. That's why God said you become like us. See, when you sin, what's the first thing that you do? You experience shame. And the second thing you do is you're like Adam and Eve. You try to find those fig leaves to cover yourself. And that was the problem of Adam and Eve's sin. They kind of all of a sudden knew too much. And that sin that they had now experienced caused them to become who they were never created to be. So that's why God said it wasn't good for them. So I think the most important thing that I want everyone to get out of this message, I know Becky, I've jumped over on my notes, is that God's action of justice is not vindictive, it's not punitive, it's protection, it's restoration. Everything that God does in our life is designed to lead to salvation and it all leads to restoration. That's the core truth. That's the core one truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everything God does is to lead us to repentance, is to lead us to restoration, is to lead us into a perfect relationship with him. And we see God's design is to come in and to get us to stop sinning so we can come into eternal life. Before I close this message, I want to make sure it's clear that 
everybody understands that salvation doesn't just automatically happen. <clears throat> that salvation doesn't just happen because you're born and live and living. We have that problem sometime in our American culture that we think because we're Americans we should have salvation. Everybody should. See, Scripture is clear to us that we receive salvation when we respond to God by faith. That's core number four we're going to talk about in three weeks. We'll get there and we'll talk about how do people respond to God. But today I just want to touch a little bit on uh, receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior, surrendering your life to Jesus. So I don't want anybody to walk away from here thinking, well, just this automatically happens in your life. So I want to look at the books of Romans. Romans. In Romans 4, 2, verse 4 and 5, it says God's kindness is to lead you to repentance. So that's what we've been talking about all day. How the love of God searches people, finds people, speaks to people, and leads them to repentance. And that's what God's goal is to Jesus to do for us. But then you read the next verse in Romans that says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's what happens to people without Jesus. You're unrepentant, and you're waiting for God's wrath. That was a judgment that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden when God gave them their consequences. That's God's wrath, that that would happen forever and ever and ever. But Jesus comes in and says, I can stop that cycle in your life. I can stop the cycle of God's wrath, and you can have eternal life. But what's the op opposite of an unrepentant heart? You need to have a repentant heart. You need to get rid of stubbornness and become repentant. And by repenting, you turn away from the way you're doing things and say, I'm turning to follow Jesus. And that's salvation. Salvation is when we get back to the Creator's plan that He has for our life and say, I want that to continue on. See, Adam and Eve had a good plan for their life that the Creator had designed for them. But through their rebellion and stubborn heart, they got out of God's plan. Salvation is getting back into the plan that God has for your life and following Christ by faith. See, everything in the Bible revolves around the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he has done in our life to give us a relationship with him. It's a beautiful story. And that's what God does for each of us. And God's doing for each person that we're praying for. That's the core one of the gospel. It's kind of amazing when you look back on the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and you see the compassion of God. So often we think in this culture that God was so mad at them that he kicked them out of the garden. We think, he, they, we think Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden because they sinned so bad. But you know the Bible never explicitly says that they were kicked out of the garden because they sinned. It says they were kicked out of the garden to prevent them from eating the tree of life. They were kicked 
out of the garden so they would not live forever in sin. And that's what God came to do for each person here, that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what the situation in your life, if you like it or you don't like it, it's all designed by God for one thing, to break the cycle of sin in your life so you can live in it for in eternity with Jesus. A little later on in Max Dupree's book, Dear Zoe, he talks about another time he went to the hospital to visit his granddaughter. And while he was on the side of her bed, contemplating life and contemplating little Zoe, he asked the question, is perfection like the weather? Is constantly fine weather better than the changing seasons? Where would we be without the storms? Can we learn to sail without the wind? Is being wounded make us less perfect or more perfect? See, no matter what's happening in your life, if you're in a storm or if you're in calm water, if wonderful and exciting things are happening, things appear a little hopeless. We have the confidence to know that a sovereign God is directing the winds. That there's a sovereign God that's dedicated to the plans and the purposes of each person's life to get them back into the creation story. 